0: We can build a really strong foundation by going to these businesses all around the world that are completely outside the crypto space. And we just believe that that would be really compelling for investors in the DeFi space.
1: Imagine you're a borrower in somewhere like India or Africa or the global Southeast, and you want access to credit. Now, that's been a big issue. And at the same time, you have all this on-chain borrowing and lending that happens in crypto. If only a team was smart enough to connect the liquidity providers in crypto with the people that really need the loans in these developing countries. Well, that's what Goldfinch Finance have done. They are empowering people and bringing about financial inclusion by building a decentralized credit platform. They have some incredible backers and I was very privileged to sit down with the founders and to talk about their outlook for DeFi and the vision and where they see this going over the next couple of years. So today I'm excited because I've got Mike and Sam from Goldfinch Finance. How are you both today Mike and Sam? Great, thanks for having us. Fantastic. My pleasure, my pleasure. I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Could you introduce yourselves briefly and tell us your roles within Goldfinch Finance? Sure. I'm Mike.
0: I, I'm the co-founder of Goldfinch and co-founder and CEO of Warbler Labs, where we're
2: one of the contributors to Goldfinch. And hi, I'm Sam. I'm the chief investment officer at Warbler Labs and helping to bridge you know, what's being built into the, via Goldfinch into the real world.
1: Excellent. that leads us nicely to the next question, which is what is Goldfinch finance and what problem are you guys solving?
0: Yeah, the high level of what Goldfinch is is it's a decentralized credit protocol that is making global lending possible on DeFi. So we we started Goldfinch with the idea that we believe all private credit is eventually going to move on chain, and we need a protocol to make that possible and organize that activity. So Goldfinch, what we're building with Goldfinch is, is effectively a bridge between all of the, the capital and the activity happening in DeFi with borrowers outside in the crypto space who have been traditionally underserved and looking to access financing. So our main our main focus at first is on fintech and lending businesses throughout the global south that have been underserved for, for a variety of reasons and offer those kinds of attractive yield opportunities to the DeFi space with these companies. So I think in terms of talking about what the problem is that we're solving here maybe i can i can share kind of like the problem from the crypto angle and then sam could, could share more about for the borrowers the problems we're solving for them but but from the crypto angle the big the big issue with getting borrowers on chain in this kind of lending is if you look at the existing kind of lending protocols like compound and ave the way they work is they're over collateralized with crypto specifically so people. Put up, say, a dollars worth of or $150 worth of Ethereum in order to borrow 100 dollars worth of USDC. And so they have to like start with more money than they actually borrow. It almost doesn't really feel like a loan. But most borrowers outside of the crypto space, they they need to borrow because they don't have the money to start with. They need to provide other forms of collateral rather than crypto they might already own. So that's like the problem. That Goldfinch is really solving from the crypto perspective, which is how can you make an organized lending happening on on the def, in the DeFi space without requiring this crypto as the source of collateral to begin with. So that's the kind of like the the crypto problem that we're solving here. But I wonder, Sam, maybe if you could speak a little bit about the borrowers and and how we're solving problems for them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it just as just I think context is helpful. as I've spent the better part of maybe past um, five to eight years living and working across the Global South, so particularly focused in Africa, Latin America, uh, and Southeast Asia, <clears throat> and just thinking about you know what is the experience of whether it is an individual or whether it's a small business or whether it's a, you know, a fintech looking to borrow. The massive issue is they're just starved for capital. And essentially we're talking about there's a a credit gap in like the hundreds of billions that are needed that local investors, banks, et cetera, aren't providing. And this really, you know, this capital is needed to drive growth, not just for these small businesses, but like, frankly, for the country's macroeconomic growth. And so... Their star for this capital. It's been a massive pain point holding back, basically, you know, driving financial inclusion and whatnot. And so helping and reusing Goldfinch to help bridge what Mike had just talked about in terms of solving this massive credit gap, which is needed to help fund all of these activities that are going to help these countries grow.
1: Amazing. So let's make that a little bit more tangible. So let's say I'm a small business owner in Africa. And I want to get a loan today to help expand my my very small franchise. Maybe it's a little shop or whatever it might be. Typically, that person has very limited uh, options. So, going to a bank without a full credit history might be difficult. Lending money via family and friends, if your peer group is 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 not affluent, is is difficult. And as we've seen in some of these countries, the banks themselves are are quite corrupt. I'm thinking about some of the countries in in Southeast Asia there. So how does the Goldfinch process work for that uh, borrower? And is that the kind of borrower who you guys can help? Or is it somebody slightly higher up uh, the curve in terms of how established their business is?
2: I can take that one. So that sort of borrower is ultimately the borrower that we want to get to, especially if it turns um, into like, a, like what's considered a natural person. So like literally a, a human being. Um, and that is the ultimate goal. Although the barriers to that goal, which you just highlighted, are how do you assess someone's ability to pay or how do you assess someone's willingness to repay? Because as you mentioned, there just isn't a lot of data there to like make a decision. And so whilst that's the ultimate goal thankfully with regards to you know what's being built here is providing loans these sorts of people can ultimately create on-chain history whereby anyone from in a composable fashion can then underwrite them whether it is goldfinch or whether it's anyone else so that they have basically a public record with regards to their ability to pay but that's you know, for a future state. In terms of today, again, you know, the main issue is there isn't a lot of credit history. So actually what's, what is happening now is you've got a lot of local fintechs who basically are using alternative data, which they're triangulating, like, probably in like, you know, 10 to 50 different ways, measuring how, you know, what is your ability to pay? Because, you know, your ability to pay can be measured different ways in Nigeria versus Indonesia versus Brazil. And so as of now, from the Goldman's perspective, it's more so a channel strategy where the capital ultimately ends up with that borrower example that you have, but it's going through a fintech who is well equipped in that geographic context to understand the nuances of how do I understand in from a, a cultural and technical perspective, how to measure your ability and willingness to pay. And so those fintechs essentially are the channels who borrow capital in and, and then deploy that to that end u- user or person who effectively is being ignored by the existing financial system.
1: So what, what's amazing about that, and thank you uh, to Mike and Sam for, for that introduction. So what's amazing is all this work has been done by these fintech co- companies over the past, let's say, 10 years to provide credit to those kind of borrowers. And we've seen some notable successes there. What you guys are really doing is bringing a whole bunch of liquidity from the crypto world and then and then using that as capital that can be lent out to these people where there's already been strides made with regards to how do you evaluate the credit worthiness of somebody who doesn't have a traditional credit profile? Is that a fair? Is that a fair statement?
0: Yeah, we're we're essentially a wholesale lender right now, lending to these to these fintech companies that have built expertise on the ground in their local markets and really understand their their the local creditworthiness of of their markets.
1: And and maybe a simple question, but but one that definitely comes to mind. So the loans that you're you're making, I'm guessing they're in stable coins and then those stable coins, what is the flow that happens? Let's say I provide a million uh, USDC to Goldfinch.
0: Sure. The the high level flow funds is folks in the crypto space will provide, like you just described, USDC into the protocol. There's a couple of ways to do that and then we, we can get into that separately. And then the borrowers, they're borrowing in USDC terms. So they borrow USDC and they have their own account set up with off ramps like finance or, or Coinbase or Kraken. So they sort of they they borrow USDC from the protocol and they send it to their account there and then on a place like Binance they will exchange it for the local currency and withdraw that to their local bank account and then and then do their standard operations from there.
1: And in terms of repayment of the loan is the FX risk there on board taken on board by the fintech company by the wholesale lender.
2: Yes, that's that's the case because they're borrowing in USDC which is a covalent To USD, and so they take that on, and similar to if they took on a fiat loan, there's just many paths you can take with regards to how you manage that risk.
1: Makes sense. Great. Well, let's let's maybe move on to talking about how it works from a liquidity provider perspective. So, myself, (laughs) let's say I'm Refi or one of Refi's investors. So, I've come to the Goldfinch website here, and there's really a nice graphic perhaps you could just break down for us the how it works graphic which is on your website
0: sure yeah and i can describe kind of like a high level using the how it works graphic to describe high level how the process works and like the there are two ways to supply capital one as what we call a backer the other is what we call as a liquidity provider into the senior pool but to describe the flow let's say there's a borrower say a fintech company in brazil and they want to borrow 10 million dollars what they will do is propose this as what we call a borrower pool to the community say we want to we want to borrow 10 million dollars here and then the the community will evaluate that pool effectively evaluating the borrower and and the qualities of that loan and the we call these active investors the backers the backers provide capital into the junior tranche of that loan And the junior tranche means that it is first loss. If for whatever reason there is a default, the junior tranche takes losses before the senior tranche. So these backers, they're the active investors, and they provide capital into the junior tranche. And then separately, there is a senior pool. And the senior pool is the aggregated diversified, like lower yield, lower risk option. So liquidity providers, that's the word we use for the folks who supply capital to the senior pool, they provide capital to the senior pool. And then the senior pool automatically allocates that money into the senior tranches of all the different borrower pools. And when they're allocating it into the senior tranche, they, it's both like automatic and it's safer because it's protected by the backer capital, and to make all the economics work, 20% of the interest that would go to the senior tranche is reallocated to the junior tranche. So that gives the junior tranche and the backers there an outsized yield to compensate them for doing the work of evaluating the different borrowers, as well as for taking on the, the higher risk of providing this backstop as first loss capital to the senior <laughs> tranche. So, that's a high level of how it works is liquidity providers provide capital into the senior pool, which is automatically allocated and diversified across all of the senior tranches of the borrower pools. And the backers provide are the more active investors who provide capital directly into the junior tranches of different borrower pools. And those two combined is how the borrowers are ended up are able to get financing and get money and then they, they draw down from their borrower pools once they are funded
1: understood and so in a senior tranche how many different fintech firms would you be lending to or would it just be for one particular uh, entity or one particular wholesale loan
0: the senior tranche includes essentially every every loan every pool on the protocol so it would be all of the all of the fintech companies that are participating are all part of that 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 senior pool. And then each individual senior tranche within each borrower pool is specific to that particular borrower.
1: Understood. So, so you do have some degree of diversification?
0: Yeah, the, the senior pool is fully diversified across, and it's automatic. So it's kind of a set and forget pool where you supply capital to it, and then it gets automatically diversified across every borrower pool.
1: Which is obviously across different uh, sectors and different countries as well, which is... Yep. Which is which is great. So let's talk a little bit about the yield that you can expect as a liquidity provider and then assuming you can become a backer, the kind of yield you could get on the junior tranche by being a backer as well.
2: I understand. Do you want to take that one? Sure. Okay. So I would say the type of yield, I'd break it down into three categories because there are a lot of numbers just to help keep it simple. And so the three numbers would be what is the total gross APY? So, and then the gross APY—that's the first component. Then the second and third components are like the are the components you add up to get to the gross APY. And the second component is the cash coupon, and the third component is the we call it the token yield. And so, starting just high-level numbers is the senior pool in total. You, know, you can expect somewhere between a twenty and like forty percent sort of return. And then the junior or the backer pools as you we are mentioning would think of that as being somewhere between the f- picking up where the last one left off 40% and probably up to somewhere between like, you know, 70%, 80% in total. And now I appreciate those are massive numbers, but the um, breaking those down Essentially, there in terms of using Mike's example, is there is a cash component and a variable component. The cash component literally is if you put a hundred in, that is a loan that's being given out to someone, they are paying interest on that, which is a like fairly straightforward. So that is the cash in component. And for the senior pool, which is the 20 to 40 percent, you can think of the cash component of that being somewhere between, let's say like five and eight. And so the rest, after the five and eight is the token and the token essentially is the um incentive whereby the liquidity provider is being provided basically a gfi or the native token for goldfinch So, like you know process is pretty bog standard for multiple protocols and so you receive a token for having invested and so therefore you then have um Cash coupon, and then you receive this token, which right now you know is publicly tradable. You can go into Coinbase and whatnot to trade it if you like. And so, when you combine those two things together, you get the you get that twenty to forty percent in the senior pool, and same same mechanics for the junior one. Main difference between you know why is the senior twenty to forty, and why is the the junior much higher is as as Michael's was mentioning, the senior pool is passive, it's diversified, it's across all these different um, aspects. And they are basically paying the junior or the backers for the work that the backers do in terms of underwriting, assessing, understanding, structuring. So the backers are taking first loss or just in another way of saying it is they've got skin more, the, 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 if anything were to happen, they're the first ones to lose money. So as a result of them doing all that work and being in their riskier trunch, they are compensated more for the work that they had done. Hopefully Understood.
1: Understood. And, the, and the Goldfinch token, GFI token, which you said um, is available and publicly tradable on multiple places, so you could get it on Gate.io, Coinbase Exchange, etc. Where does the uh, utility come from from there? Are you earning a percentage of fees on all the underwriting and is that how the Goldfinch token derives its value?
0: Yeah, so there is what exists today and then what's in the roadmap. So the main utility currently uh, is governance voting. So uh, people use the GFI token to vote on proposals happening about basically every future change to the protocol is controlled by the token holders. And that also includes what the protocol will do with the revenue and fees that it's taking in. So right now the way the protocol takes in revenue is 10% of interest set aside as, as revenue, as well as 0.5% of withdrawals. And so that totaled right around $100,000 in the past month. So the, the protocol is already kind of up and running and, and, and getting revenue. And the token holders will decide what to do with that. There are two additional major utilities that are in the roadmap. One is there will be a auditor system that gets built out where the auditors stake the token to participate and borrowers pay for audits with the token. And so that's like a core utility. And the second is building out a staking mechanism where people can stake Their GFI token in return, they receive a portion of the revenue and fees coming into the protocol, as well as receive enhanced, uh, like increased voting power in future votes. So those are two pretty substantial utilities that are going to be coming to the protocol. And then the, the main one that is in existence today is the
1: governance voting. Understood. Make makes sense. And for the people that might not know this, so obviously, if you're in the developed world, like like ourselves, in in either the USA or in Europe, you might pay a few percent, two, three, four, five, six percent for a loan. Could you talk briefly about how much people are paying for loans in the global south, like you, like you mentioned?
2: Sure. I would say on APY basis this is where the differentiator between who uses alternative data to underwrite versus who doesn't because the more data you have the you know the lower the cost you can cost you can provide but the frankly ranges on APY basis from between I'd say about up to about 20 percent.
1: And so this is really where where some of this yield is coming from at least the the kind of cash APR which you you referred to and it's A bit difficult for us sometimes when we're a thousand miles away, quite literally from it. But the alternative for a lot of these people is to pay way in excess of 20%, especially if they're going to some of the more uh, mercenary loan providers in their their local demographic. So what you guys are doing is solving a real problem, which is you have people that need access to, to capital. They don't currently have... A lot of capital, unlike uh, unlike the over collateralized loans available in crypto, and over the past ten years, like you said, there's been a burgeoning growth of fintech startups to underwrite credit for these people. So you're connecting those people with the world of crypto, which is which is incredible. Could we could we talk a little what bit I'll
2: about? Also sorry, add there. Sorry to cut you off. No, I'd no. also add there is the the beauty of also what's being done is that there's transparency finally, because in the private credit markets, it's literally a black box because it's by definition private. So for any of the borrowers who are using Goldfinch in the ChatFi space, while this is very, it, it's usually very hard to understand how much people are borrowing it. You can simply go you know, to the Goldfinch app and you can literally see what are the key terms and how much are people paying and that is something while it's bog standard basically in defi it is not at all the standard in in the tradfi world and so also it's like helping bring a lot of that you know spotlight to how much are people borrowing at which hopefully help drive competition and then bring prices even lower <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that's one of my hopes of Goldfinch is that by bringing this entirely new source of capital that crypto is offering to these markets that have just been starved for cash, we can kind of increase competition among fintechs and just bring more capital into the space and drive down the cost of capital for folks. That so these borrowers, such as you know the example that you brought up, they aren't having to pay these kind of what, what we would view as like ridiculously high rates from like, you know, in, in our case, like a USD, like a US perspective, that would be like an amazing thing for Goldfinch to do is actually just like help, help transform these markets and make them more efficient and bring access to capital and thereby bring down the rates that these kinds of borrowers need to pay.
1: Understood. And, and let's make it a bit tangible. So I'm looking on the kind of wholesale borrowers that use Goldfinch. So you've got Aspire who provide SME loans in Southeast Asia. You've got Divi Bank who provide loans in Latin America, and then you've got Payjoy providing financing in in Mexico, just to name a few. If there was ever a default in one of the underlying loans that they gave out, can we just clarify who takes who takes the hit on that?
2: Sure. It would be, as of now, those particular companies. So it would be a, a part of their processes when they are providing their products or services to their end users or clients is baking in the prospect of losses. So they bake that into their underlying product in terms of how they have security or in terms of additional margin or that they, that they can, so they have the ability to soak up losses. So at the end of the day, they have a diversified set of customers and they, that they calculated that they're going to gain or pull in enough capital such that when they turn around and have to pay back whoever their lenders are, in this case, Goldfinch, they aren't, they aren't there with a shortfall.
1: Exactly. So they're always on the hook to pay back Goldfinch and therefore Goldfinch's borrowers in the USDC plus principal plus interest, which they borrowed in the wholesale lending market.
2: Yep. Yeah, that's correct. And then
0: I can also I, just. Oh, sorry. Maybe you're going to ask. I was going to add it, what happens if there's still an issue. N-
1: not so much. My my question then was why why is there a senior and a junior tranche? Because if the risk of default is being taken by the wholesale lender, why do you need a a, a junior and a senior tranche?
0: Oh yeah, I would say there's two things. So one is by going by going to these lending and fintech companies, like Sam described. We would expect, like almost no defaults to happen because it's already baked into their model. But there still is a level of credit risk. There's still like a possibility that their their models or something are just like everything something completely changes and they aren't actually able to pay back their loans. So there is that implicit credit risk. In which case, the capital suppliers to the Goldfinch protocol would would see. That borrower not being able to pay back certain things and the the backers they enter into loan agreements directly with these borrowers so they can pursue recourse with them but even let's just say let's just say that the the money isn't there then that's where the backers would see losses first before the senior tranche and the senior pool would see potential losses there and so there is still an implicit credit risk that's one reason why it makes sense to have these two tranches the, the second reason why it makes sense to have the, the junior tranches and the senior tranches is we, we want to create ways to leverage the work of the people who are most actively involved in the protocol. So in, in DeFi, generally, we would expect a large portion of the capital to come from passive investors who don't really want to spend time evaluating everything. They want to more set and forget their capital. And then there's a subset of folks who really do want to spend time being really active and evaluating the borrowers, ensuring that they're they're great credit risks there. And so we need a system to compensate them and create this economic incentive for them to, to do this work. And that's like the main thing that the senior and junior tranche is achieving here, is it allows these active investors to take on more risk and then get really substantially compensated for doing that work. If you think of the numbers that Sam shared earlier, with the senior pool, you are getting the range of twenty to forty percent. But then, in the junior tranches, you're getting forty to seventy percent APY. That's like a substantial increase. And so, this these two tranches just creates this sort of this system that makes it kind of all tie together and incentivizes that smaller group of active investors and leverages the work that they do.
1: Yeah, and somebody might start out as providing liquidity to the senior pool, and then. Diving a bit deeper into it, getting to learn the Goldfinch platform, and and wanting to earn their boosted yield, and and wanting to be a bit more involved in the underwriting process, and and therefore migrate quite naturally to to being a backer. Was Definitely, that, yeah, for sure. And so can we talk about some of the people that provide liquidity? Because I can imagine there's a lot of pent up demand from traditional finance. I'm thinking family offices. I'm thinking asset managers. I'm thinking crypto institutions as well to provide loans to Goldfinch. Is, is that who you've seen the demand from or has it been a completely different audience that's been providing liquidity?
0: Early on, I would say a lot of the demand we've been seeing is from folks who are already super active in different DeFi protocols. So I, I would call them kind of like crypto pros, people who are yeah, supplying to like all different sorts of protocols in the space and are already like really familiar with how it works. And then we've also been starting to talk more and more to institutional investors, including family offices, high net worth individuals, uh, larger institutional funds, like credit funds, for example. And they are, I would say, like they're starting to get, they're starting to dip dip their toes in a little bit. But the process with them is they aren't totally familiar with crypto, broadly speaking. So there's like the first step of them getting comfortable using crypto. And then after that, starting to understand the differences between the different protocols and take a look uh, closely at Goldfinch. And a lot of them, like Goldfinch, specifically because we're, we're doing KYC through the system. So it meets a lot of compliance requirements, as well as like it's a more kind of traditional form of, of yield that is that's like grounded in like productive economic activity, which they can understand. So they're definitely really interested in it. But the earliest kind of capital suppliers so far have been the ones who are participating in all these other protocols who are like really actively uh, involved with them right now.
1: And and we'd probably consider ourselves as refi in that former category. So a liquidity provider who is an expert in different DeFi protocols. And mm-hmm. um, What we like about Goldfinch, and, and maybe what some of our investors will like about Goldfinch, is if you were to provide liquidity on an existing DeFi protocol like uh, Yearn or Aave or something like that, a lot of the demand for the liquidity that you put up, let's say you put up ETH or you put up USD, uh, USDC, is demand, the APR is coming because there is demand for leverage and people are borrowing your stable coins and then levering up either margin trading or, or something else. Here it's completely different. And like you said, it's more akin to the traditional lending markets where you're lending money to somebody who really needs it because they're going to grow their business. And so for us, one thing we really like about Goldfinch is this idea that you can earn yield, but from a productive asset. And you can be diversified across a whole bunch of different borrowers such that even if one underlying borrower defaults, A, that's the responsibility of the company that underwrote the loan. But even if a wholesale lender was to go under, you've got this kind of junior tranche aspect to it where where the senior tranche doesn't get hurt as much as well. So hats off to you guys for building something which has caught the attention of, of quite quite an, a number of people in the, in the DeFi space. Thank you. It's,
0: yeah. The 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 trying to get away from like it was a very sort of deliberate goal of ours to provide sources of yield that are not correlated with anything else happening in crypto. So when there's a bear market, I don't know if you call the current market a bear market, but even with prices declining and rates decreasing, the the yields on Goldfinch have been pretty steady. The, currently the the yield you get in the base stablecoin and USDC on the senior pool is. or 6.94% right now on on the stablecoin, and that's been consistent all the way through, regardless of the broader crypto market fluctuations. And the reason for this, the reason for for going after this market, I mean, one is just as part of our mission to to bring on borrowers from the global south and expand financial inclusion and, and, and access to capital. But another reason is like we did a lot of research early on and we talked to some trading firms, and including some of the trading firms that are active on some other protocols that are borrowing there, and we asked what their sort of what their kind of like borrowing demand is over time. And they were telling us how, oh, like when the market they were describing how like you say in the summer of twenty twenty, like when the market declined a little bit, they're like, oh, during that time, our borrow demand declined ninety percent. And, and we had like much less demand at that point in time. And we realized, oh, like if we, want, if we want to have like a great, sustainable, uncorrelated source of yield, rather than going to some of these crypto trading firms that are highly correlated with the markets, we can build a really strong foundation by going to these businesses all around the world that are completely outside the crypto space. And, and we just believe that that would be really compelling for investors in the DeFi space.
1: I think everything is lined up for you guys to to grow over the over the coming weeks and months. A question for anybody who who might be thinking of of launching a DeFi protocol themselves. What are some of the lessons that you've learned whilst building Goldfinch?
0: There is I have a couple and I'm also curious, you know, what Sam thinks too, but there are two that have come up for me. One is how important it is to think about every single stakeholder when launching a particular product. So I my background is before Goldfinch I was at Coinbase and before that I was at Medium of the publishing site as well as at different tech startups and I'm used to a certain type of like iterative product development where you like you 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 launch something that serves one person's needs and you can kind of iteratively add other things. But with crypto all the stakeholders of a given product feature or protocol feature are immediately impacted by every single thing and it's really important to account for all of them so like one example was when we did the token launch in the original token launch we're like okay here's liquidity mining set up for this group and like we'll add a liquidity mining for these other two groups later specifically like the backers we're like we'll add it for the backers later thinking oh we're gonna just be iterative here go with the minimum viable version and like keep adding on to it but then when we launched it, the The backer community was like, "Hey, like, what about our liquidity mining?" And it was like a big thing, and that, that was just like something I wasn't quite expecting. Because with traditional like Web two product development, it's not like not that big of a deal. But when you're building for a community, and the community is involved, like ev- like everyone is impacted all at the same time, and there's economics involved, and it, it's not that easy to just get to this other thing later. You have to kind of like really think about how are all the stakeholders accounted for with every single launch so that is like one one thing that i've learned is like oh it really it involves a lot more sort of like consideration around the different stakeholders compared to even web2 product development and then the second big thing for me is just how important security is and how much more complex that makes development again i'm comparing it from this like product development lens compared to web2 and with with protocols the risks are so much higher compared to like launching a new feature on a website and the security requirements there also make the development process more complex because we need to coordinate audits with audit firms that are like booked out 6 months in advance so how do you f- think through figuring out the audit schedule while also developing things on time and like managing like internal deadlines and then also how do we bake in our own internal auditing procedures as well so it's, it's not enough to just like build the feature and get some tests working and launch it like we have to do a whole sort of internal review at the same time so that security process like adds time and and sort of complexity to developing these things but they're really important to incorporate early on into the product development process
2: nice and what i'd add are two more but just i don't want to reaffirm one of the points that mike just made and so Generally speaking, of the three points, two of them are actually in terms of not new learnings, but rather affirming learnings. It's been focused on investing and working in the you know fintech space across the global south for a good while, and so the things that have been affirmed, there are two of them. Is one's related to marketplaces, the second one is related to being thinking ahead with regards to being like regulatory forward, and the third one is actually something as pretty much new learning on community. And so on marketplaces, similar to what Mike had mentioned, thinking about stakeholders, it's just reaffirmed, you know, marketplaces are tough. <clears throat> you got spinning plates. There's a lot to build at any point in time. And you just can't run with one direction of your marketplace because then you need to think about how that impacts the rest of the people or stakeholders. So speaking to what Mike had mentioned too. The second one is just affirming that thinking ahead with regards to, okay, how do you build a scalable product while also having an MVP with regards to being regulatory forward. Which I think fundamentally, you know, when we first launched our KYC pooled or pool product, which was which was Goldfinch's, I think even though a year ago, you know, it, it feels like it's not that long ago, a year ago in the DeFi space is a century and there weren't many other people doing that. And now you see the likes of, for example, even Ave and other protocols that are now starting to build at least the optionality of having KYC pools, which we thought would be super important because the capital is going off chain into the real world. So those are two things that were just affirmed. Marketplaces are tough being ranked or forward. Like it's not a detriment, but actually could be um, helpful. And then the thing that was kind of new to me was community. It's like building a community is tough. We're lucky that we have a really, really big one, but you know, even through the hype of web three and all the buzz that's there, it's still a lot of work. So it's not, you know, something like you just build it and people will come. So it takes a lot of work when we got a great team that's helping to help mold and, and you know, people that are helping to help scale it up.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling as you say, both of these, all of these points, because in building a, a DeFi protocol ourselves, definitely come across this idea that it's tough to please all your stakeholders at the same time. Um, yeah and come across this this thing which is very different to building in in the traditional company space or the web 2 space where the community is is like having a vc sat next to you all day long and, and <laughs> giving you giving you feedback on where you need to be and the community is incredibly honest as well about every single move that you're making, and it's it, it's a really virtuous cycle, but one which needs to be constantly constantly monitored. So I, I do feel you are on those points.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, sorry, okay, I was just thinking it just kind of reminds me of like way back when I, I just think of this example of like a Web two example of like when Facebook launched the newsfeed, and I forget when that was. I think it was in the early. 2010s or maybe around 2009 or something like that, they launched the newsfeed and like everyone freaked out, or they were like not happy about it. And they complained and informed Facebook groups about it, complaining about it. And Facebook was kind of just like, that's tough. We're just, we're just doing this. Uh, like get over kind of a thing. And I feel like that's a bit of the web two mentality of you just launched the feature whether or not the, the users are like, or like the people are that interested in it. I wonder in like a, a web three crypto version of that, if a company were to launch a feature like newsfeed that everyone complained about, but those customers all have like ownership in the actual product itself, and they can vote on things like it changes, it just changes things entirely. And so that's sort of like, in some ways th- there's been this like web two ethos where you don't really have to take into account like really core stakeholders. And then it's kind of like the tables have totally turned when it comes to crypto, which I think is like, awesome.
1: But at the same time as well, your community, and this is definitely true of, of refi, your community become your biggest product champions as well. Yeah. And so we've had we've had people writing articles. We've had people very active on Twitter. People making B two B introductions. Even this conversation we're have, having now was through a Refi holder who was a, a relatively small holder who who just put Goldfinch on our radar. So it does open up an incredible network, and at the same time as having. Having some downsides has huge upside as well. So, I think net net, we're all grateful for our, our our communities. Two two questions to wrap up. So, how much dollar loans have Goldfinch made so far to date since launching? And is there a minimum size to provide liquidity on your pr- on your platform?
0: Sure, I can answer that. My the total total active loans to the protocol right now is eighty two point three million dollars. That's the total amount of loans that are kind of out out in the world that borrowers have borrowed. And there is no minimum to participating.
1: Good. Well, I just connected my wallet um, to the goldfinch.finance website. I can see that there are a whole bunch of different pools available there to kind of dive through. You've also got some comprehensive docs, which people can look at on the website outside of 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 those, what's the best way to follow you both and to follow the Goldfinch project?
0: I think the, the I mean the best way to follow Goldfinch is there's on Twitter the handle is Goldfinch underscore fi fi, uh, and then also that links out to the Discord. So hopping into the Goldfinch Discord is a great way to to keep on top of everything.
1: Amazing. Well, this has been incredibly um, informative, guys. I I thank you so much for your time. I personally would love to to stay on for hours and hours and and discuss the way that the underwriting goes and what the vision is going forwards. But perhaps we can save that for a later date. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Mike and Sam, for joining us on the ReFi DeFi podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah,
2: I agree. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. This podcast is hosted by Huff, the lead farmer at Reimagine Finance. Reimagine Finance is a farming as service provider available on the Ethereum and Binance smart chain. Nothing in this podcast can be considered financial advice and any money invested is purely at your own risk. Nothing in this podcast should be considered an invitation to invest and listeners should seek independent advice. You can follow us on Twitter, Telegram, and Discord.